Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode, I am joined by Troy Wiggins, author, blogger, friend of the show, and more recently, Book Riot contributor. I will have a link to my previous interview with Troy. Along with Troy, first time, we've got two different guests on the show. Kalita, an author and podcast narrator, also joining us. All three of us were blown away by N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season, which is the first book of the Broken Earth trilogy. A brutal and incredible new book out this year. All three of us enjoyed it immensely. Also felt a bit daunted by it. When I saw Troy and Kalita sharing some thoughts on Twitter, I asked them to come on the podcast. And what you have now is a condensed and edited version of the conversation that we had. I will note that it's going long at 40 to 45 minutes. So apologies after all of my promises of always 30 minutes long. We're going a bit long this week. A couple of programming notes. I interchangeably pronounced orogeny and origine because I'm not quite sure what this underclass of the empire is called, but these are the wizards and earth magic users of the fifth season. We will conclude with a significant book from an upcoming guest. Parrish came on to talk about comic books and shared memories of two different books that he enjoyed. You get one of them now. The sound quality during the episode is a bit rough at times. I apologize for that. Still working on making sure that the guests and I have good equipment and recording environments. But until then, Area Podcaster promises to do better next time. We will lead off with some thoughts about genre and the wonders of the fifth season, which make it both fascinating and difficult to talk about. Is there a genre? (laughs) Does this fit? Somewhere outside of this story, or not quite outside, there are these floating obelisks, there are these stone eaters who eat stone and get born out of a rocky egg and are somehow kind of summoned by powerful orogenies. It's kind of fantasy in that sense. It's it's a higher level of technology than we're used to from fantasy and I know I've heard Jemison say in the past that she doesn't really distinguish a whole lot between fantasy and science fiction there are these implants and you get the sense that the Guardian implants are not like they're they're made of their stuff of technology rather than just stuff of magic and yet the story is avoiding those things well I think in that way this story and Jemison's writing in general is really quite brave because it blurs the boundaries or removes them altogether. I have a personal affinity more towards science fiction than fantasy, but I do enjoy them both. I see elements of both in this story, but I also see a love story, many love stories, in fact, Mm -hmm. between friends, between lovers, between a mother and, and a child we haven't met yet, and, the, and a mother and, and the dead child. There are, I think, too many aspects here to try to put it in a category, but I think it would fit just as comfortably in science fiction as in fantasy. I think some of the aspects that would lend towards science fiction is the technology and the obelisks, but I think the fantasy, for me, comes in more with what happens with the land and the connection of the people with the land. Yeah. When, I think, when I think of fantasy, I think about being very grounded in a world. Mm-hmm. And when I think of science fiction, I think more technology stuff. So I think it can go anywhere, but I don't think it should have to. Yeah, I think you said fits as comfortably in either genre 
maybe also fits as uncomfortably mm. in either yeah. genre. Who are the people in the obelisks? What right. is the role? Like, I had all kinds of things. Are they aliens? Like, I... I have no clue, and... Well, there was a stone eater in one, in the one that Cyanite uh, saw. The damaged one. What are the stone eaters? Despite the confusion, <laughs> I'm totally willing to go with it. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I would love to chat for a moment about Hoa and... <laughs> yeah? And the stone eaters. I would say that this is where I was most lost in the book. And I had several questions. Who are they... What are the obelisks? How are the stone eaters and the obelisks connected, if at all? And who is Hoa and what does he want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same questions I had. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what do we know? We know that the obelisks, well, we know that the woman she meets on the road, Tonki, who was in a position to know, claims that... The central area of the fulcrum, which I think she calls the socket, is where the obelisks were built. We know that when Demaya goes down there, she meets the guardian who probably, although it's a little unclear which faction of the guardians is which, but probably gets kind of somehow taken over by Father Earth and possessed. Somehow that hole in that area is some kind of channel to being taken over by Father Earth, who is a real personality and not just a kind of nameless, vague god. Right. We know the obelisks are floating up there. See, now, I was totally lost there, because the Guardian went bazonkers, Mm -hmm. and I could not figure out why or what was going on or what, and her Guardian ended up killing that person, correct? Right. By ripping out some attachment to the spine. Yeah, she had like a brain bug or something. Not not that it's ever really talked about, but they have these little things that they stick into your spinal cord or your brainstem to... Because he did that to Demaya, too. Right, right. right. That's what I thought. Yeah, the level of technology and the, the ways in which people are able to interact with the power of the Earth. Because I get the sense almost that the Guardians maybe don't have much power beyond whatever they get injected into their spinal cord, or maybe do. It's it's pretty vague. It's not one of those books where that's what's foregrounded at all. I get the sense that the Guardians were sort of along the same lines of the origins, only with different gift or different power. Not that they could so much control the seismic activity, but that they were somehow related to the origins and maybe whatever their gift was made them better able to control the origins. We know that they can shut down origin powers. Yeah. And we know that some of them, when they touch skin to skin, can also, like, I think it's inflicting pain, right? There are those special guardians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when Demaya's guardian tells her the story of the emperor and the first guardian, I think it's a guardian origin story, although, again, it's not entirely clear. When we get the guardian story about the origin who comes and wants to get rid of the emperor, the guardian who stops her doesn't have special powers. Like, just relies on the fact that the origin is surprised by the fact that there's not all this power to use. 
and stabs out with a special knife and then is able to kind of finish things off. So at some point, the Guardians didn't really have power. But now they they do. Yeah, because I'm reading that. I went back to read the part with Timae where she got possessed or whatever happened mm-hmm. to her, which it looks like she was possessed. She was asking these weird questions. Shafa basically just stuck his fingers in the back of her head, pulled something out. <laughs> That's not like a thing that a regular human with no powers can do. Also, that whole hand-breaking thing that he did. Again, something's going on with them. Though I have no idea what it is. I don't know what this brain stem thing is. You don't even get a really clear description of it. It says he, he takes it with his left hand, the one that is still clean because it did not rip out Tomei's brain stem. He took it out. I can't find the passage, but he ripped it out of her head and it was covered in blood. You don't see what it is. Right. But whatever it is, obviously the core of whatever power that they have. I mean, obviously she's dead because he just reached into the back of her head and pulled something out. But <laughs> Right. I don't know. This is why, st- like, like Kalita said, this is why I started to get overwhelmed. Like, I'm like, what? What's going on? <laughs> I see that you're dropping a hint. To go back to Shafa a little bit, I felt about Shafa probably much the same way Demaya did. I couldn't hate him. I mean, I, I knew that he was a guardian. I knew that he was part of this system. But I loved him just as much as Demaya did. Really? It was a strange thing. I think that he was just as much part of that system as she was. Now, certainly he was in a position of power. Yes. But I could, I could not find myself hating him because I felt like, in many ways, he was just playing his part. And I never got the sense that he had any bad intentions for Demaya. And then there were those moments of real kindness and tenderness. And it was a confusing kind of thing. I will hurt you one minute, but I still love you. It's it's a weird thing. Really? That is such an interesting read. I read Shafa as a textbook abuser. Like, abuser slash, like, businessman, right? He definitely was playing his position, and he knew his part in the overall system. Mm. And I think that what illustrates him as, like, you know, textbook abuser is his, one, his dedication to that system. Mm. Of oppression. Like he was dedicated to it. He wanted to maintain that system no matter what. And um I don't think he I don't think he was altruistic at all. I don't think any of his any of his actions towards Cyanite or any of his any of that kindness was altruistic. I think it was simply to soothe her into accepting what she was where she was supposed to be as evidenced by the fact that he had turned violent. You know? Mm. He told mm. her a story. He told her a story that basically served to like tell her you have no power here right and then when she shows frustration at that he turns violent right he's like let me show you again that you don't have any power here in the most physical way possible that there's nothing you can do to escape the system so you should just deal with it and he's kind you know i I think that probably much like the maya i really wanted to believe he cared about her yes Mm mm-hmm and also, not just that he wanted to care for her, but that she needed someone to care about her, considering what had happened with her family. She showed her power. She's sent to sleep in the barn. She's squatting in a corner to relieve herself. She's there for days. She's cold. She's dirty. And when he comes in, he sort of is scolding her mother and shaming her mother for leaving her in these types of conditions. And yeah. I think I really wanted to believe that he cared for her. Even when he first introduced himself, he waited for her to come to him. He didn't force her or anything. And 
I think she needed that. And I think for her sake, I needed that as well. I think I was sort of in between. I didn't like him, but I did feel as though he was playing a part within the system. And I, I felt like he did have some genuine affection for her and that, you know, chastising her mom and showing some level of kindness. I, I felt like that was in part Shafa showing that he he did care about her, but also cared about her as an orogeny in his care. And that that was like, part of that is you have to know your place. But if you know your place, because I kind of got the sense that when she went into the socket and he came and rescued her from the other, from Tamei, like I got the sense that he was kind of going out on a limb for her. Yes, definitely. And that he was risking. And so some of what was going on there was this system in the Empire does not only destroy origins. Like, it is also destructive of the Guardians and the people in power. Because he can't see her as a human that he can interact with. Sure, you're a kid, but I need to break your hand so that you understand that you have to always be in control and have to always obey me. And right. I never really liked him, but I definitely in some ways saw him as also a victim of the system. As good a guardian as you could get, if that's even a reasonable thing to say. Right. No, yeah, yeah. Like, she kind of lucked out and got him, right? He wasn't completely evil. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you bring up a good point with regard to what happened after Tamei. Because it's almost like he's begging her. To prove herself. I need you to go take this test right now, and I need you to pass. Yes. The kid in the node chamber. Oh, that broke my heart. That that was awful. And yet, I don't think too different from the world we live in. I mean, certainly, we don't, you know, have children locked up, hopefully. Although, you know, things happen. But we're not um, enslaving people or kids in that way, in a, in a way that's legal and out in the open. Let me put it that way. But um, what was happening with this child, how this child was being brutalized and used, we hear these stories all the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and, and so much of it is just kept out of sight. Mm. And then as long as it can be kind of kept out of sight, no one really asks what's going on with the node maintainers. No one really yeah. Because no one likes the origins anyway, right? Right, and even even the origins in the fulcrum, it's like, well, I'm glad I'm in the fulcrum. I'm, I haven't been disappeared. I know that sometimes some people are disappeared. Like, they don't think about the node maintainers and what's going on. And, and terrible things can happen when you take people that you don't really see as people and kind of push them out of sight as much as possible. Yeah, and I think to a degree, the origins don't always think of themselves as people either. Right. I, I think, and, and then there's also this underlying sort of caste system going on where you have, what are they, the strong bat? Mm -hmm. and, and there are other groups and everyone needs to sort of have their place. And some of them are more likely to end up okay than others. Because mm. somewhere there was the comment, you're such and such caste. If push comes to shove, you're going to get kicked out of the comm. And I think also the way a lot of the origins in the fulcrum where you mentioned how, you know, some of them were saying, you know, I'm glad I haven't been disappeared. Well, I think that's very much a lot of the attitude uh, around, you know, how slaves would behave. I'm glad I get to be one of the ones that work in the house and not in the fields. Mm -hmm. Sort of accepting their lot and just 
hoping for the least of two evils or many evils. Mm-hmm. I had a little bit of trouble with the the second interview I sent, the one that connected the fifth season to the Black Lives Matter movement, because in some ways it's it's just incredibly on point and right there, and there is this brutal society that is built on lies that it tells itself, that is built on taking a group of people and dehumanizing them as much as possible. And there are so many parallels that can be easily drawn, and as much much like the author of the blog post, she says, I honestly don't think the book could have been published before 2015, and I count myself among the audience who probably wouldn't have been ready for it a few years ago, and I'm in a very similar position. I have been much more aware in the last couple of years and as I'm getting more involved in Twitter and much more aware of, of what's going on in my society that I am benefiting from in many ways. Like, I'm at the top of the power structure. And it it was, in that sense, kind of a hard book to read and sort of easy to say, okay, I'm, I'm drawing modern parallels here and I I worried as I was doing that that I was making things a little too superficial and and that there's more to the fifth season than and and the way society works than sort of just let's draw contemporary parallels with America now and the way that America is built on white supremacy in a lot of ways it was both a kind of easy and I think very relevant and contemporary reading and also I worry about what I'm missing by focusing on that. And there are multiple horrific scenes and events focused on children. Well, I, I think that you're right in that I think if you focus too much on making those modern-day connections, I think that you will miss certain things. For me, when I read the book, I did not make any connections immediately. But mind you, I think that may be just how my mind works. I'm the person who read, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and didn't realize until I was an adult that that had some pretty Christian themes going on. Me too. It didn't occur to me. So I think if you look for those things, you'll see them. I didn't actually start thinking about the connections until after I'd read the book and read some reviews and given it some thought and then realized, yeah, that might be. However, I don't think that that should be our purpose, or for me, it's not my purpose in reading the book, or it's not something I'm looking for necessarily, but it is something that I like to see, just like I like to see books where I can see myself in some way reflected within the pages of the story. I'm automatically, as a woman of color, going to look at this main character and start to draw on her experiences and sort of compare and contrast them to my own. They're there, but this is a much broader story. I don't think that you should necessarily be looking for the connections. I think they'll find you. Mm -hmm. It sort of made me rethink about the whole idea of what was going on with the origins that was forgotten by me since I read the book and that they were kind of like slaves in their society. And on the one hand, they are so feared that a father would actually kill his child, but at the same time feel very divided by 
their what happens with them because their power is so awesome that there has to be something, has to be some kind of control. And you can't just let them be the way they are with the threat of that untrained, untapped, improperly tapped power being loose. I'm so divided as an African-American person. While I've never experienced slavery, it's still an ever-present understanding for me. So the idea that these people people would be oppressed and enslaved is reprehensible to me. But at this, And as is killing them outright once you find out that they have this power. But at the same time, this power could be just as constructive as it is destructive. It can be just as good as it is bad. And it seems irresponsible to just let them be. And, and, and not only that, they are absolutely necessary to that society um, yes. because they are the ones who can stop these earth shakes, these quakes. They are the only ones that can ac- actually protect the people who don't have this power. And so I think there's this weird dichotomy here, which I think tells us there is no one side to this story and there's no clean answer to how to handle this. Yeah. It's really interesting that you bring up the comparison between origins and uh, African-American people, specifically because of the kind of threat that they represent and kind of like comparing that threat to the threat that African-American people represent to the larger systems in America. So you have this treatment of the origins as like these these really, really huge and dangerous people who we must control for the sake of our society. And they're subjected to violence and mistreatment and, you know, enslavement. And a lot of the times, a lot of the things we see happen to black people in America is kind of based on that same feeling. So I think that's a really, I don't know if you made that that parallel intentionally, but that was a really kind of a stupid parallel to me. And one of the things that really stuck out for me, which sort of, I guess, presented a sort of midline view, was when Cyanide and Alabaster were in Miab with Enon and his people. And Enon is an origin, but untrained. And what did he use that power for? It, it wasn't to do good things. Although you also got the sense that one of the things that they used the power for was to keep the island stable. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, the rest, I mean, they were also off being pirates. They were pirates. I wonder, though, is it so the inhabitants of that island were there basically to separate themselves from the outside world, and they didn't really have any way to subsist, right? They couldn't farm because the land was too rocky, and so I guess, like, in a way, piracy was their subsistence. So is that bad? The only way that they could interact with the Empire? Yeah. Or even with the things that they need to survive, like food that's not fish. You know, so I wonder. <laughs> well, I think that interacting with the Empire means that their whole society will, would eventually be disbanded. Those people actually revered the origins. Exactly, because yeah. one thing I was going to point out was it's taken for granted in... Cyanite society and in the empire that origins are dangerous and must be controlled somehow. Right. But we have an example of a stable island that has gone through at least one of the destructive seasons and survived and come out the other end 
there is a way to build a community around origins who are in charge rather than being enslaved. Well, I think there's also something else to consider, and that is, for example, in the case of Enin, he was an origin, but he was nowhere near the power of alabaster or cyanite. Yeah, so he was so, even stronger cyanide. Right. Right. So imagine if you are an extremely powerful origin who is not being honed and, and taught and reined in, and you're a kid and you have a temper tantrum or something like that. Consider the potential destruction. Like, there has to be some kind of safeguard in place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you see, I mean, like, even when Shafa was talking about children at origin, how instinctively at Alabaster 2 at the North Station, instinctively children reach out with their orogeny and do things, mm-hmm. right? And those things tend to either be either dangerous or beneficial with no, no real middle. So right. either they stop a big event or they create a big event. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, there definitely needs to be that, that kind of training. I even wonder, like, with Enon and with the other pharaohs, how do they stop themselves from destroying everything? Even in like Nissalim's case, how did he figure out that if I do this, it's bad for everyone? That's one of the questions I had when right. reading about just the origins in general. Um, yeah. Thinking about the power that they have. And that also begs the question, what did Uche do that yes. scared his father mm. so much that he killed him with his own hands? I mean, if you get to the point that orogenies are by definition terrifying monsters you know it's certainly not unheard of and in fact somewhat common that if they're discovered in an isolated village oh yeah that they're I mean, just that, that they're just killed yeah that's a thing that is constantly referred to it's over and over it's a thing that like if origins are discovered if they do something that is dangerous to the calm they're usually killed the calmly rask his sister right. was killed right people just dra- dragged her off and killed her it could have happened to demaya you know so that's the thing. We're going to move on now to the underground origin refuge of Castrama. That is so much a social commentary for what happens when you have oh, oppressed yeah. peoples. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They yes. always find a way, even if they have to go underground. And this is exactly what they're doing, literally. They're going underground. Mm-hmm. And... And they are uh, they are staying there, and somehow intend or hope to survive this season. They'll still be there, and I think that speaks so much about what happens with oppressed people. So they can't be out in the open about whatever, whether there it's sex and sexuality or racial oppression. I think people will always find a way to still exist, and that's what these people are doing. Yeah. So I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, for sure. This whole book is just a masterclass in how to properly address what oppression does to a group of people, how different systems of power play, and how people play with different systems of power, and how, you know, some people wrap that power around them and try to make the world better, and how some and the, people... And the differences in the way that people perceive oppression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To some extent, you get those differences in just the protagonist. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we definitely get that. At the very beginning, she knows that she's oppressed, right? And she's looking for a savior. And for a very brief moment, she sees her oppressor as her savior, right? Yeah. I mean, she's really interested in obeying and fitting in. I will be a good origin and do what my guardian says. 
A little bit of Stockholm Syndrome? More than a little bit. (laughs) Even when she's cyanide at the very end and the ships have come to the pirate island, she gets a question from her guardian and she just immediately answers and it says something about the habits of obedience were so ingrained. But by the time she's cyanide, she is angling for power. And how can I have power in this power structure and how can I fit into this power structure? And I know there are things I don't like about this power structure, the ways they were treated by different members of the hierarchy in the town. That was a pretty significant series of interactions between Cyanite and a couple of middle-level bureaucrats. And over over the course of those interactions, we see Cyanite gain the upper hand a couple times, and, you know, we see her flex her muscles a little bit. Alabaster is just glorious. Yeah. But I think it all comes down to one simple thing. Despite how these people are seen by the general population, they still need them. They hate them, but they need them. They even pay for it, right? That's what yeah. was illustrated in the Santa Alia. And then looking at that and looking at how all of that, none of that matters in the face of the overwhelming power that is the Earth itself, right? right. <laughs> because right. when she was escaping, she thought back on them like, huh, they're probably dead. As a writer and as reading this book as a study of craft, I was like, yeah. Like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're better than me, because the whole time I kept thinking, I will never be able to do this. I had probably one of the very few pangs of jealousy that I will ever have, because jealousy is not my thing. But it's like, oh my God, I'll never do this. This is, it's just so perfect. <laughs> it's, it's really masterful. Yeah, yeah. I would like to talk a little bit about the relationship between Alabaster and Cyanite. Foz Meadows spoke at length in her post about her feelings about Alabaster being a, a gay man, sort of being forced to have uh, this intimate relationship with a woman for the purpose of having a child with who could be an origin, a powerful origin, since he was a ten ringer. And I think Alabaster is just about as strong a character on his own as our main character. And I grew really attached to him quickly, despite the fact that he was really ornery at first. Mm -hmm. And I guess it took us a while to figure out why he was so ornery. But I sort of fell in love with him because you learn that he was just so hungry to be loved. And I think it just made him pissy that he couldn't get that. And even though he and Cyanide sort of had this bickery type of relationship up front, he truly loved her. And they had this baby together. And he wanted to have another baby with her. I really liked their relationship and how it, it came to be. Yeah, that was one of my favorite pieces is following the development of their relationship to this different love. It's not the standard romance arc. They still kind of hate each other. <laughs> they also love each other too. The baby Corundum, yeah. I can't really articulate the what was interesting about the baby's effect on their relationship. Oh, I can. But one of the things is kind of you see this really obvious kind of role reversal, right? Alabaster is the one who takes care of the baby while Cyanide goes out on raids, and, <laughs> or she wants to anyway. And Alabaster's like, you need to stay home. <laughs> I loved that he wanted to be a parent. As a stay-at-home dad, yeah. I loved 
him being the parent and the one who was really attached to Koru. And that was, like, that was wonderful for me. I didn't have a problem with her not wanting that. But but I, I loved those scenes with Alabaster and just being able to be joyful with the kid, even though there were so few of them, because this book is so brutal. Yeah. It is. Well, it's like, it's like Kalina said that, like, Silver Alabaster here was a being who loved him. And even, even when he was trying to, you know, coerce Cyanide and staying with him on the colony, on some level, at least for me, which I also dug Alabaster, on some level for me, it was like, come stay here, love me. Mm -hmm. I also was quite intrigued with their very unconventional relationship between the two of them and with Inan, who seemed so pleased with the way things were and so comfortable. I mean, they never seemed to have a sort of push and pull or difficulty with that, which I found interesting and different because we're used to hearing about the jealous lover. They were so comfortable and it was almost like NM was that puzzle piece that connected them even more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was also, he also seemed to be like both of their drug. Right, mm-hmm. like he 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 brought things out of both of them that I don't think I think they knew they had those qualities, right, or they had those passions. He he stoked them and he brought things out of them that maybe wouldn't have come out of them had they had it just been those two together. He has a primal effect on Cyanide when she first sees him. She immediately is attracted to him, and she I think she notes that she doesn't normally dig on guys in that way. She doesn't normally broadcast the fact that she's attracted to a person like that or wants to go after them like she does in on but something about him brings something out in her we see what he does to alabaster mm-hmm. yeah and yet she was willing to step aside for alabaster yeah which was her love for him right yeah and i think yeah. you're right i think they they hated each other as much as they loved each other the story itself is very well manipulated so we don't get to see anything except what the author wants us to see, right? She very expertly crafts the story in a way that makes us have to parse what little information she gives, which is why we don't know anything about these previous civilizations, which is why we know very little about these pirates out on the island of them. They've been there for a long time. We don't know where they came from, maybe how they got there. I think that one of the things that really sticks out in regard to that is that this is so much this multi-name protagonist story (laughs) like this is her story and everything that we see we can't say that little which wasn't killed by his sister we don't really know how big the fist markings are you know there's a lot of information we don't get and we have to wonder is that because asun was just not in the position to give us that information Mm-hmm. You wonder if that's a trick of the narration, but the way that Jimison does the story, she does it so well. We, I, when I was reading it, I was like, okay, this is information that we're getting from the, the in-character narrator, not from the author herself. I did read a post that she put up that sort of hit on a discussion I was having with a friend of mine who was having a little bit of difficulty with the second person POV mm-hmm. for a soon. And I've I've seen and heard elsewhere where people talked about it, usually not in a negative way, but have talked about that POV and how different it is and how surprisingly it worked and that they don't normally like it. I felt really vindicated when I read her post because 
a lot of what I was thinking about her use of second person turns out to be sort of spot on. I felt like it was the only way we could really get super, super close to her and sympathize with what was happening to her. Right. And I did. Totally. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's a little tough for me to say because I don't tend to connect with characters a lot. Although Alabaster playing with his son. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that was so. But I agree that having the second person and getting from time to time to see into her head, I loved the decision after Hoa revealed that he was a stone eater. And she was just like, well, I don't know what to do with that, but I know what to do with kids. And he's clearly a kid who would like acceptance and a parent. So I'm going to fit into that role. It's funny what you just said there sort of made me think about the course of her life from the time when she was Demaya to Cyanite to Isun. She, at all of these points where we start with these characters or this, this person, she has needed something and she's gotten something or someone that she didn't realize she needed. And that was her guardian who she, mm-hmm. she, she needed that person that she felt cared about her. And then um, this, this child, this stone eater, Hoa, who was clearly very attached to her. And Alabaster, who she couldn't stand, but who taught her so much mm-hmm. about love and about herself. So I think as brutal as the outcomes of these relationships have been, they've helped her grow and helped her become whoever she is every time she changes her name. Mm -hmm. There are so many unhealthy relationships in the story. Mm. And I keep, part of me wants to go back to the fact that she was happy with the pirates. It was a a kind of a long time. Yeah. And so with them like a page. But I mean, she had periods. I mean, she she got married and had two kids. Mm. And she established herself at the fulcrum well enough to be kind of an ambitious mid-level person who was sent off on an important mission. There were good and stable times in her life that all happened off screen. Yeah. And I agree. There were a lot of unhealthy relationships, but I think that's life. I think that we enter into unhealthy relationships oftentimes, and despite them being unhealthy, I think that we get something out of them sometimes. I can say very inarticulately that I loved everything about it. Mm-hmm. I loved the characters I loved. I loved hating the ones that I disliked. I love the world building that on the outside seems quite simple, but really isn't at all. It's just that she's handled it so well. Yeah. I think it's masterful. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. In terms of comic books, this is kind of an odd selection. X-Factor number 87. It comes off the end of Executioner's Song, which is a you know a crossover event that happened with all the X-Books. And I'm not going to get too far into that because then you get into superhero continuity. And that's, that's like reading Spaghetti Code. X-Factor 87 was a one-off, um, which means that it was self-contained. It didn't fit into a larger story arc. Mm-hmm. What struck me about it, 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 there was no action in it at all. It was the the characters of the team going to see a therapist Mm -hmm. and talking through all of their issues and how their powers play into those issues and how being a mutant 
plays into those issues. And it's a fascinating read. It's one of the, the comic books that to this day really sticks out to me. You know, it was, it was a character study for the entire team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a comic book that you normally would expect action and superpowers and punching people in the face, it was them going to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. And that to me was fascinating. There's one scene in that book. Quicksilver was a character that was a part of the X-Factor team. So we've seen two versions of Quicksilver in the movies. We've seen him in Days of Future Past, the the X-Men movie. We've also seen him in Avengers Age of Ultron. The version in Age of Ultron, I liked better. I don't think that's a controversial statement because I think most people liked him better because he seemed to be much more in line with what I know Quicksilver as the character in the books. There's a scene in X-Factor 87 when... The, side, the therapist basically asks him why he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he's playing with a Rubik's Cube and he, you know, quickly solves the puzzle because everything he does is really fast. He sets it down and he tells the therapist, have you ever been frustrated in line to use the ATM and the person in front of you doesn't quite seem to know how to use the machine? Have you ever stood in a fast food line with someone who can't seem to make a decision of what to order? And the therapist goes, yes. He said, now imagine spending your entire life with everyone moving too slow. Huh. It make you frustrated. It would kind of make you a jerk. Yeah. That is one of the best scenes in comic books I have ever read. That book clearly stands out to me. Okay. If you ever get a chance to read it, like I said, self-contained, X-Factor number 87. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at King Cabbage Cast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.